Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit NFL.com slash schedule release to learn more. Some carriers give you so little for your older busted phone, you just end up living with it? I don't think so. Verizon lets you trade in your broken phone for a shiny new one. You break it, we upgrade it. You dunk it, doggy bone it. <laughs> Slam it, wham it, strawberry jam it. We upgrade it. Get a 5G phone on us with select plans. Every customer, current, new, or business. Because everyone deserves better. And with plans starting at just $35, better cost less than you think. Today is Monday, November 29, 2021. Coming up on Roller Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network. The state of Alabama, they are fining the city of Montgomery $25,000 for renaming a street after civil rights icon Fred Gray. Why? Because the law says you can't change any Confederate monuments. We'll talk with the mayor of Montgomery, Stephen Reed, about this very issue. Two trials we have our eye on. Chicago judge begins questioning protective jurors for former Empire actor Jesse Smollett's trial today in Chicago. And in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, they're preparing for tomorrow's start, the manslaughter trial of a former Minnesota police officer who fatally shot a black man while yelling taser during a traffic stop 
current arrest earlier this year. A black man in New York who spent 39 years in jail for rape he did not commit is now a free man after discovering serious flaws with his prosecution. A star high school football baseball player in the state transfers schools after a school assistant and led director said the student got his speed not from running track but from running from the police. And some sad news to report, designer Virgil Abloh, Florida lawmaker Kerry Meek, the man who broke the color barrier in golf at the Masters, Lee Elder, all passed away this weekend. Uh, folks, uh, it's time to bring the funk. I'm Roller Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. With entertainment just for kicks, he's rolling. Alabama Attorney General's office says the city of Montgomery owes the state $25,000 for changing the name of a street that held the name of a Confederate president. In a letter to the city, Alabama Attorney General's office said the city violated a 2017 state law protecting Confederate monuments and other longstanding memorials. Last month, Montgomery city leaders renamed Jeff Davis Avenue for longtime civil rights attorney Fred Gray. Represented Rosa Parks, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and others. Now, of course, there was a major ceremony that took place in the renaming uh, of this. It was a pretty big deal uh, in Montgomery. Uh, but your Republican lawmakers, uh, they have been staunch defenders of racist Confederates in that state. Joining us right now is Mayor Stephen Reed. Uh, Mayor, glad to have you uh, back on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Same thing happened in Montgomery, where they find uh, city, city, uh, the city there uh, when, when Mayor Randall Woodfin took down a major Confederate statue. What's quite interesting, Republicans love talking about local control, yet they don't want local control when it comes to what you do in your state, in your city, when it comes to Confederate monuments. Absolutely, Roland. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, you're exactly right. You know, the hypocrisy, uh, once again, is being shown, uh, I think, by the actions taken by the state in this case. Um, Republicans like to speak about home rule. They like to speak about uh, the power of local government. And they like to speak about uh, why they don't like federal government overreach. But yet, at the same time, uh, you see them doing that from state legislatures all around this country when it comes to cities, in particular cities that are uh, majority-minority uh, cities. And this is one of those instances where we knew it was the right thing to do uh, to take down the name of Jeff Davis uh, Avenue and rename it after attorney Fred D. Gray. And we're proud to do that. And, you know, no um, case or no fine is going to stop us from moving forward because there are also other things that we have to uh, reevaluate, whether it be the other names of other streets, parks, or other entities that are named after uh, Confederate soldiers and leaders that just don't fit where we are right now as a city and should have never been honored uh, in that way in the first place. 
Well, again, you know, this was uh, a move by Republicans in that state. They have been staunch defenders of the Confederacy. Uh, I mean, Alabama still has a Jeff Davis holiday. Uh, and so uh, what's interesting is that uh, they want to tell these majority black cities what they can and cannot do. Yeah, absolutely right. And I think, you know, what we're trying to do as mayors is, you know, push our uh, vision for New Montgomery or in Mayor Woodfin's case, a New Birmingham forward. And really we want to turn the page on the, on the past. And this is part of it. Look, I'm the first one to say that uh, symbols, um, you know, matter, but systems matter more. And so this is part of what I've been trying to do in the two years that I've been elected as mayor uh, here in this city. We worked on the systems. We continue to work to improve those and dismantle those that have been oppressive to many residents in this community. But we also know that we've got to change the perception, the perception of those that are uh, living in this community, those that visit this community. And when you're in a place that uh, the Equal Justice Initiative uh, calls home and you have the Memorial for Peace and Justice and a Legacy Museum, it's incumbent upon uh, us as city leaders to make sure that we are forward-facing uh, in terms of how we want the city of Montgomery to be viewed and how we want to project ourselves both internally to our residents as well as externally to investors, tourists, and other community partners that we are really moving forward and we are really building uh, toward a better future. Well, and, and, and the point there uh, is a critical one because, again, uh, these Republicans in your state, they want to uh, stay in the past uh, where you're talking about moving it forward and why shouldn't the residents of the city decide uh, who they're going to honor as opposed to uh, white Republicans in Alabama trying to honor uh, these old racist white relics? Who lost? You know, I, no, listen, I, I think it's one of those cases where this is, was a reactionary measure that was taken after, um, you know, cities like New Orleans and others around the South in particular started taking down statues and, and, and started changing names in a, in a reflection point uh, of where we were uh, as a nation. And you saw this overreaching law uh, come out and say not only did it apply to statues, but it applies to uh, other monuments as well, applies potentially to schools. Does it apply to streets? And those are things that we're questioning uh, from our standpoint is, you know, where does it stop and where does home rule begin? And that's what we can't quite figure out because the rules keep changing uh, without legislatures really making uh, laws like this on the fly based on the motion and not really based on uh, the, the true concept of law as it should be applied to municipalities or to states themselves uh, when it comes to issues such as this. So is it a one-time fine or is it a recurring fine? It is a one-time fine, but the, the concern here is, as I mentioned, you know, we've got uh, two high schools, one named after Robert E. Lee, we know, one named after uh, Jefferson Davis, where I graduated high school from, that are right now um, being reviewed by members of the community to have those names changed. So the question is, are they going to be fined as well? We also put together a street renaming committee uh, made up of our longtime uh, state archivists here, uh, Dr. Ed Bridges and many others, uh, Dr. Howard Robinson, the archivist at Alabama State University, uh, to really look at the names of streets, parks, and other entities 
and they've come up with suggestions that are at least more than 10 that also should be renamed. So the concern that we have is, if we're fine on this case, can we pay it? Yes, we've had donors from in the city, in the state, and out of state offer to pay the fine at no expense of taxpayer dollars or no expense of the taxpayer itself. However, the question is, if we're really going about correcting the record, as I like to call it, and we move forward, and I plan to do so, um, with changing the names of other streets and parks and other uh, facilities, then those fines do start to pick up. Those fines do start to add up. And the question becomes, you know, are we better off challenging uh, what the state has done? You know, Dr. King once said law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice. And when they fail to do so, they become uh, dangerously structured dams that prevent the social progress. And that's really what we have to uh, think about from our end here at the city is, you know, where do you start and where do you stop where this is concerned? Can we pay the 25000 Yes. But I think the bigger issue is, do we need to make a statement as it relates to uh, legislative overreach coming from conservative uh, state legislatures and what they are doing, in particular, as it relates to uh, cities and urban communities, not only here uh, in Alabama, but throughout the state and throughout this nation? But, but again, uh, you've renamed it. They're going to fine you. They can't force you to return it back to Jeff Davis Avenue, correct? That is correct. Okay. All right, fine. Give them the damn money. All right, <laughs> all right fine. What, what, what else to take down? Okay. Uh, Mayor right. Stephen Reed, uh, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Hey, always good joining, bro. Thanks so much. Keep up the great work. I appreciate it. Thank you so very much. All right, folks, I uh, bring my panel to Dr. Julian Malvo. She's the Dean of College of Ethnic Studies. California State University, Los Angeles, Dr. Omakongo Dabinga, professorial lecturer, School of International Service, American University, Maurice Davis, civil rights attorney. Uh, glad to have all three uh, of you here. Uh, here's the deal, Julianne. All right, y'all want the money? All right, here it is. Fine. Take them racist, <laughs> take them racist ass symbols down. Hey, you know, uh, GoFundMe. We this is right. easy to deal with. You know, right. I, I know there are all kind of people all over the place who say, just get rid of this, you know what, mess. Uh, I applaud the mayor. And I applaud their street renaming commission as well as what they're doing with the schools. There is no way that a black child should go to a school that's named after any Jefferson Davis. Uh, this, it's just untenable. So this has been slow coming, but the uh, energy of the Black Lives Matter movement, the energy uh, that has been generated after the murder of George Floyd, all that energy is showing up now in terms of ways that we change things. And so I am just excited for Brother Mayor for, in some cases, leading this charge. And as he said, the Equal Justice Initiative is there. It's where we've been documenting lynchings, 5,000 of them. So how dare they think that the people who lynched deserve monuments? Um, so the question, Maurice, uh, you heard the mayor there, they should be challenging these laws. Can they? Do you have a case? Because, again, state... The law they passed that said uh, that, that no changes can be made to Confederate monuments unless approved by the state. Absolutely. I think it's a violation of equal protection. I, I, there's definitely a case. They need to take it to, take it to the courts, challenge it un, under federal law, and get those laws overturned. For now, we'll raise the money, we'll pay, and if, if they want to fine, they want to issue a fine for renaming those 
schools, we're naming those streets, then we'll, we'll pay the fines. Until the law is overturned, that's the way we have to handle it. It's exciting to see everyone. It's exciting to see all the young people getting involved, all of the activism, and the response over the past two years to all the injustice that we've incurred. And if they want to have these racist laws in, in, in place, we're going to challenge them. And they will be overturned once they get to the courts. I, I'll tell you, Omakongo, uh, these Republican races sure love their Confederate monuments. <laughs> For the, for, 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 the so, for the so-called party of Lincoln. Right, <laughs> right, right. You know, I've never seen any other country in the world so intent on building monuments to losers and, and traitors. But this is what these guys are intent on doing. And we got to make sure that whenever the next MLK Day comes around, we shout every single one of them down who wants to throw out a Dr. King quote on their Twitter page or their Facebook page. And even when they're talking about all of this fake critical race theory debate, which is really a, uh, an assault on critical thinking, they want to throw out Dr. King. Well, what about, you know, who said about content of character because they can never get the quotations right, right? But what about the people like Attorney uh, Gray uh, who, who defended him? Right, who are out there fighting for him. You got to honor him as much as you got to honor any of these other people out there. Because what we saw in the civil rights movement, it was activists, artists, lawyers, everybody coming together. And we're seeing it again happen right now. And I was so happy to hear that people had volunteered to pay those fines because they're trying to hit us from all of these different directions. But the fact of the matter is, when we come together like this, they can't stop it. Uh, well, it's just so amazing. Uh, this, again, as I said here, the party of Lincoln love and defending their Confederate signs. All right, folks, we got to go to break. We come back. Uh, we're going to talk uh, about several different issues. Uh, first and foremost, two major trials beginning, one in Chicago, one in Minnesota. Also, a recap of the Bayou Classic this weekend. Southern University and Grambling State will have, show you uh, some of the festivities there as well. Uh, in addition, uh, a black man all, who served prison time, rightly did not commit. Now he's been fully exonerated and a woman wrote, wrote a book that was gonna, and it's a movie being done about her story. Now, one of the actors is dropping out of it as a result of that exoneration. We'll tell you all about that on Roller Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network. Betty is saving big holiday shopping at Amazon. So now, she's free to become Bear Hug Betty. Settle in, kids. You'll be there a while. Ooh, wait. Hey, I'm Amber Stevens.
Martin's website. Yo, what up, y'all? This is Jay Ellis, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Asia Renee Hampton has been missing since October 2nd, 2021. The 16 year old was last seen in Oakland, California. She stands approximately five foot two inches tall, weighs about 120 pounds with black hair and brown eyes. Kaeja was last seen wearing a black hooded sweatshirt and blue jeans. If you have any information regarding Kaeja Renee Hampton, please call the Oakland Police Department at 510-238-3641, 510-238-3641. Today in Chicago, jury selection has started in the trial of actor Jesse Smollett. Uh, Smollett faces six counts of disorderly conduct for allegedly making false reports to police that he was a victim of a hate crime. In January of 2019, the Fox series uh, Empire Star told Chicago police he had been assaulted by men using racial and homophobic slurs, but the investigation alleges that the actor orchestrated the whole incident as a publicity stunt. Smollett has denied that and pleaded not guilty to all of the charges. Okay, now what's interesting about this is that uh, the prosecutor's office of, of, of Kim Fox, they decided not to pursue the charges, but the police upset. Mayor uh, Rami Mango, they all are upset. They blasted her office for doing so, and then they chose to have a special prosecutor investigate, which led to these charges. So the question here, Omakongo, waste of money? It's amazing, I mean, how the city of Chicago is spending a lot of time, energy, and resources going after Justice Smollett on this case. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. It's just, this is Revenge 101. And they, they can't stand the fact that, you know, they, they felt like they were, you know, played on different levels. But look, at the end of the day, there are so many other things that need to be worried about in that city right now. And so what, what are they really trying to do right here, right? Because I feel like when they, what they're trying to do is they're trying to make an example out of him. They're trying to crush him for everything that he has. I appreciate the fact that, you know, that the family is standing strong with him. Because, look, whether he, he, he lied or not and so on and so forth, really, at the end of the day, there's so much going on in that city right now. But they are working hard to make an example out of him. And it's really just unnecessary right now. Maurice, is this a case that should be going to trial? Well, we have a couple of, we have a few non-serious minor misdemeanors that Mr. Smollett is charged with. Understand the city wants their revenge. They expended a lot of resources investigating what they consider to be his false claims, but it's not as serious as they're making out to be. It seems like Kim Fox, she offered him a version of a diversion program that she has where he would pay a fine, agree to forfeit the $10,000 that he had posted, and the charge would be dismissed. That's something that I get my clients in all the time. We do that here in Detroit. They'll, uh, prosecutors offer, they'll offer a diversion program where the case is dismissed at the end. There's no probation. There's, there's nothing. Essentially, stay out of trouble for a certain period of time, and the case goes away. Doesn't seem like the officials like that. So they want to come after Mr. Smollett, and it's not that serious. They have, the city of Chicago has a lot more serious things that they should be worried about other than prosecuting and taking this case to jury. What do you make of uh, this trial, Julian? Uh, first of all, I think that the, the Omicongo had it exactly right when he said Revenge 101. Rahm Emanuel, who cannot stand black people, who's been clear that he cannot stand black people, went on a vent about this. Kim Scott, uh, Kim Fox, rather, 
as the brother said earlier, uh, she did what was reasonable to do. Diversion, fine. Let's, it, it, this is in the weeds. It's not a big thing. But it's going to be a big thing um, because they're going through all the expense of a jury trial. They're impaneling jurors. They're taking up people's time. And blah. And furthermore, although I remember, Roland, when this first happened and we were on the program and, you know, I think you have one of the little conservatives running around saying this was all a farce. And, of course, the others of us said this could have happened. Um, and it's still, while it might not have happened the way that Smollett laid it down, these brothers do not have clean hands. So if he is being prosecuted and you want to do a full prosecution, prosecute them too. And unless you're willing to do that, I think the sort of diversion thing was the right thing to do. It wasn't a perfect situation. It's still not a perfect situation. This should not be going to trial. They should not be spending a week, excuse me, a week um, earlier to, you know, this is hundreds of thousands of dollars of people's time, effort, energy. Give me a break. All right, folks, let's talk about a real trial. Jury selection is set to begin tomorrow for the former white Minneapolis police officer, Kim Potter, who shot Dante Wright during a traffic stop in April. Potter faces first and second degree manslaughter charges for the shooting. Of course, prosecution, uh, the prosecutors will not have to prove Potter intended to kill Wright, but that she acted recklessly and her mishandling of the firearm led to his death. Um, Maurice, this, of course, got lots of attention. Uh, and this, of course, a case that follows uh, the George uh, Floyd uh, uh, case last year where Derek Chauvin uh, was found guilty. Uh, you had the body cam video here as well. You have cops who say, look, this, sh this should not be prosecuted because it was a mistake. Yeah, but a mistake leads to a man being killed. And I'm not so sure it was a mistake. Mm -hmm. Explain. A taser... What did you say, Roland? Explain. A taser weighs a lot less than a, than a firearm. It's approximately four times the weight of a taser. You pull it from a different part of your body. And any, any trained officer knows when they're pulling their firearm. She's been on the force for years. She pulled out this firearm. She's holding it. She's yelling, taser, taser, taser. And then she fires the firearm. She knew exactly the, she knew exactly what she's doing. And I think they should have charged her with intentional homicide. I mm. think the charge, as charged, first-degree manslaughter and second-degree manslaughter, I think it's going to be easily provable. And I, I, def, I don't see any way that she can walk away without being convicted of this. Mm. Julianne. Uh, Oliver Grant, Oscar Grant was killed by uh, Mr. Meserly, a police officer. The same thing. He said he thought he went for his tra taser, but he killed him with his gun. There are strict protocols around tasers and guns. One is on one side of your body, one is on the other side of your body. As the brother said earlier, they weigh a different amount. This is not a mistake. This is stupidity combined with malice. And that's what this woman needs to be convicted of. She said it herself when she said, I'm going to jail. Well, you know what, girlfriend? I hope you prophesied correctly because she understood how wrong she was. And I don't know what that was about. Was she attempting to intimidate him with a gun? What was she doing? But it was wrong. And we have to stop these constant massacres of Black people by these ignorant, um, malicious, white 
police officers who think they can do whatever they want to. I'm a Congo. Man, I, I'm, I'm nervous about this one, to be quite honest, because I, I've, I, as the story became more well-known to us, I've, ser I've heard stories about officers who have intentionally shouted out Taser when they were going for their gun because they knew that they were being recorded. And so part of me wonders if that, that's intentional. I'm wondering about it getting on the stand and crying in those tears. You know, they, they, they worked for Rittenhouse. They didn't work for the McMichaels. We, you know, we understand that. But, you know, white female tears, I mean, that, that can be a whole thing. And she definitely has demonstrated, you know, a certain level of remorse that we never saw from somebody like a Derek Chauvin. And so those types of things, just I know we got Keith Ellison there in Minnesota and everything, but those types of things may be weary about where this case is going to go, even though the facts seem to be very clear about what happened. And yes, you make mistakes and you got to pay for your errors. And she should have to pay as well. Uh, again, uh, it is a... Uh... Uh, interesting uh, case that we'll be watching. Again, it begins tomorrow in um, Minneapolis. All right, folks, uh, this story uh, is uh, quite interesting. He spent 39 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Now the man accused of raping Lovely Bones, author of Alice Siebold, has been exonerated. A New York judge cleared Anthony Broadwater of raping Siebold when she was a student at Syracuse University. Here's what happened during and after Broadwater's hearing. Good. You know, selling these proceedings by saying, I'm sorry, that doesn't cut it. This should never have happened. And uh, I will say to Mr. Broadwater that I assure him uh, that it will never happen again, that we will never let junk science into a courtroom in this county. I think, as Mr. Fitzpatrick has pointed out, Mr. Broadwater cannot get those 16 years back. But based upon my review of the motions and the representations of counsel, this court grants defendant's motion. <laughs> they take his conviction, and the indictment is hereby dismissed. Thank you, Judge. That concludes the decision. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Judge. I couldn't help but cry. The relief that a district attorney of that magnitude would 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 side with me concerning this case is it, is is so profound. I did everything I could do to always show people that, hey, I'm never that type of guy. I never could be that type of guy. A lot of doors been slammed in my face for jobs. If you wanted children, I wouldn't bring children to the world because of this. And now we're past the age we can't have children. He ruined his life. His life has been ruined over this, you know, not just incarceration, but wrongfully being labeled a sex offender. These are things that he will never get back. So she wrote this book, and it was being made into a movie that um, is, is, is actually is in, in the works on Netflix. But, but here's what's interesting here. Uh, it was actually the movie, Julian, that led to all of this. The folks who were working on the script uh, they discovered there were discrepancies between what she writes in the book and the actual case. One of the writers then hires a private eye to check the, check the stuff out. Well, all of a sudden, first of all, uh, the man had been jailed for 16 years. Um, but all of a sudden, all of a sudden, um, they found out that something was awry. They then 
reach out to him and pass it on. He then actually hires an attorney. That is what actually led uh, to uh, this exoneration. Now, again, uh, uh, the man here, uh, first of all, Broadwater, uh, he went to prison. Uh, he was released from prison in 1998, okay, uh, when he was 38 years old. But this has been over his head for all of these years, and he finally gets exoneration. But it was the movie, the Netflix movie, that actually led to this. And as a result of the exoneration, um, the uh, actor, Victoria Pedretti, she's dropped out of the movie. A previous executive producer also dropped out of the movie. She was supposed to play Alice Sebold. She says, can't do it now because of this. And she's absolutely right. Who wants to play a lying piece of you-know-what who caused a man 16 years of his life? When he was crying, I want to cry, too. He has lost so much. And, you know, white women clutching their pearls and putting their fingers on black men, it's got to stop. I didn't read her book, and I wouldn't read it if somebody sent it to me. I think that this is just disgraceful. But I, and, and a widely noted author, I mean, perhaps she was mistaken, but she's held by this story, turned it into a book, turned it into a revenue source, turned her fake rape with her false accusation of this black man into a revenue source. Netflix needs to trash this movie. She, her royalties need to go to this brother. This is more egregious than anything I could possibly imagine. So what happened here was that she identified him in court, even though identifying someone else earlier. Mm-hmm. That right there, um, Omakongo, uh, and again, as they began to look into this, they, they said, look, there are just way more problems with this. She really could not identify who committed the rape, but it got pinned on him. Uh, at the time, a 22-year-old Marine. Man, just like Dr. Mavo said, I wanted to cry, too, watching that. And we can... It, 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 I'm just thinking about the failures of the court system, that it would take somebody working on a movie to see some discrepancies that this court couldn't find it. Why couldn't they find it? Because this was another throwaway brother who nobody cared about, despite his military experience. People always want to go down when they, when they get these particular suspects. Oh, they got a record. Oh, they served time. Or, or they, they dropped out of school, whatever. This man was in the military, you know, a, a veteran. 16 years of his life and having to live that life. I, I know people who've had to go through the whole thing about coming out of, uh, of prison for, for crimes they committed. I don't know anybody who's been on the sex offender registry, but... To be on to be on that, in addition to already being an, an ex-convict, it is ridiculous. And somebody needs to come off some serious paper because this brother has lost the opportunity. I'm thinking about my own kids right now. He's lost the opportunity to do that, right? He's lost the opportunity to raise a family, do do things for the community, further serve his country because he was in the Marines. And yes, Netflix needs to scrap this. But again, it shows how our judicial system just threw another brother away. And I'm hoping that he's going to get some form of justice for this because there's so much of his life he just can't get back. Um, what is uh, interesting here is that uh, the producer, the producer, um, Timothy uh, Mucciante, um, th this is what he said. The script was very good, but it didn't track the book as closely as I would have preferred. And that just made me wonder. Why is that? Why do we have to gloss over these facets of the book? I was actually fired from the film because I was not cooperating with everyone. 
Some of the reports indicate that I left the film based on this, but they fired me as executive producer, and frankly, I was a bit relieved. There was so much angst about these issues. Now, the actor who was supposed to play Broadwater um, called and made it clear, as you see right here, he did not want the part anymore. And so you got that as well. So you have all of these examples, all these examples uh, here where people had uh, issues uh, with this movie. Uh, again, and it was Mucciante uh, who hired a PI to look into this, and that is what the, got the ball rolling uh, to free this man uh, from prison. That, to me, um, it is absolutely uh, surprising. Uh, it is uh, shocking, and, uh, and, and it just... It, it, it's just stunning, again, uh, Maurice, that whenever these cases come up, 9.9 out of 10 times, it's a brother who's the one who's having to serve time in prison for something he didn't commit. It, it, exactly. It, it's sad how easily our system convicts black men. We have a white woman, a white woman cries, says something happened to me, and we're automatically considered guilty. But the important thing that the country has been doing is we've been getting progressive prosecutors elected from all over the country. They're starting to review some of these old cases. They're trying to correct some of the mistakes. And it's, it's so unfortunate that so many individuals have lost years of their lives as a result of wrongful convictions, such as in this situation. We had recently Kevin Strickland, who was recently released after serving years after being accused from, of murder. We had Malcolm X murders. Their convictions were recently overturned by progressive prosecutors. That's, that's what we need. I'd like to see the shift that this country is making in correcting some of these wrongs and these injustices that our people have been ensuring for years. Well, actually, I got an idea. How about if Netflix does a, does a movie on him? There you go. <laughs> yeah, there you right. go. Just saying. As Amakango has said earlier, we don't know what happens to these brothers when they are falsely accused when they are then released, when, like Mr. Strickland, as uh, Maurice has mentioned, you get out, you don't have any money. Mr. Strickland, 60-some years old, he's not going to get Social Security because he hasn't paid into it. Um, the state of Missouri has denied him any recompense because there's no DNA evidence. Well, there would be no DNA evidence because he wasn't there. How could there be DNA when he wasn't there? If the state of Missouri paid him the 36000 per year that they say they pay people, he'd get $1.5 million. Well, thank you, GoFundMe, for the people who raised the money. But that ain't the bottom line. The bottom line is they keep crushing black men, and we need to know how people survive. That's a Netflix movie. All right, folks. Hold tight one second. When we come back, we'll tell you about an athlete in New York State uh, who left his high school when a white official told him Oh, you got your speed by running away from the cops. Wow. And we remember the great uh, golfer Lee Elder, uh, who passed away uh, this morning. In addition, Congresswoman Carrie Meek, uh, a uh, lawmaker out of Florida, she also passed away. In addition to a prominent uh, young, young designer taken too early as a result of cancer. Plus, our recap of the Grambling Southern Action this weekend at the Bayou Classic. You're watching Roller Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network.
Alexa, play our favorite song again. Okay. I only Spin class was brutal. Well, you can try using the Buick's massaging seat. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Can I use Apple CarPlay to put some music on? Sure. It's wireless. Pick something we all like. Okay, hold on. What's your Buick's Wi-Fi password? Buick Envision 2021. Oh, you should pick something stronger that's really predictable. That's a really tight spot. Don't worry. I used to hate parallel parking. Me too. Hey. You really outdid yourself. Yes, we did. The all-new Buick Envision, an SUV built around you. Once upon a time, there lived a princess with really long hair who was waiting for a prince to come save her. But really, who has time for that? Let's go. She ordered herself a ladder with prime one-day delivery, and she was out of there. Now, her hairdressing empire is killing it. And the prince, well, who cares? Prime changes everything. Hi, everybody. This is Jonathan Nelson. Hi, this is Cheryl Lee Ralph, and you are watching Roland Martin, unfiltered. All right, folks. Uh, quite an interesting story here. Star athlete Tony Humphreys uh, is transferring from Iona Preparatory School in New Rochelle, New York, after the assistant athletic director, Bernard Mahoney, made a racist remark to him. Now, Humphrey is a baseball player signed up to run track now. He's a major athlete already uh, deciding where he's going to go to uh, a major Division I school. Now, Mahoney asked Humphrey why he wanted to run track. Well, Humphrey said he wanted to gain speed for baseball. What did Mahoney say to him? Oh, he gained his speed by running from the police. Humphrey was pissed off, so he came home, told his parents, and they're like, you're transferred to the public school. Humphrey said he's experienced racist incidents before and reported to school officials, but nothing was ever addressed. Humphrey announced his transfer on his Twitter account, quote, I'll be continuing my high school career at home. Pumped to return to Walter uh, Panis and will bring a championship back to Cortland. Mahoney has since resigned. Students staged a walkout as well in support of Humphrey. Hmm, you got your speed by running from the cops. How about that, Omakongo? Wow. <laughs> wow, man. First of all, the, uh, he should be fired. He shouldn't have an opportunity to resign. And I, I, I work in schools, public, private, and charter all across this country. And this happens on a regular. I really respect this young brother for exercising his agency. We're seeing guys younger and younger exercising their agency and their choice to understand their value, to let them know I don't have to put up with this. Uh, there are a lot of other kids who don't have that same level of platform or, 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 no, or, or fame to be able to make a move like that, and they're kind of stuck in those situations. But I'm hoping that this will further call that out because it's happening more often than we know. And kudos to those students also. But look, man, this happens all of the time. And this is not, I'm sure this is not the first instance because the, the, the brother said that there have been many instances of this happening. And I really believe that these guys really got to get on point in terms of understanding that these kids are waking up. They've been inspired by people like Colin Kaepernick and, and just so many other people out there. And they have a platform as well. I'm sure that this brother has more followers than, than, than the guy who resigned. So they're going to be drawing more <laughs> attention to this. And these schools better get on point right now because there's going to be a lot of cameras showing up on these doors as these stories uh, start to come out even more. Uh, Julian. 
You know, first of all, I gotta give kudos to my alma mater, Boston College, uh, for he has chosen to go there, and I'm excited about that. Um, and I hope that BC acts right, and usually they do, but not always. These PWIs don't always know how to act around our people. But secondly, I think that uh, that Maloney, Mahoney, whatever his name was, should never be allowed to work with young people again in his whole entire lifetime. I mean, he's, this is not the first time he's made these kind of comments. Clearly, he's done it before, and clearly he's gotten away with it. This young brother has actually said there have been comments before. He reported them. He took it to the top. They didn't do anything. So his parents probably said, look, enough is enough. Our child does not need to be denigrated by an idiot who doesn't have enough sense to applaud his commitment to his athletic career. So, you know, again, as Amakongo says, our young people are saying over and over again, we ain't putting up with this. Before, folks put up with it. We swallowed it. We said, okay, well, it just was that one time. No, this is systemic. It is a systemic way of treating young black men and women, especially when they're athletes, but also when they're scholars. It has to stop. You know, this is thinking here, Maurice. Is like the brothers just trying to play baseball, but you know, look, it is. You know, look, you got you got these old white folks, and that's that's, that's how they think. And so, imagine uh, what what they say about other athletes. Exactly. It's completely outrageous. And as Omakongo stated, it happens all the time to African-Americans in different situations. As a criminal defense and civil rights lawyer, I talk to an individual who may be charged with their first offense every day. I hear the comments that are made from police officers and people in the community who, about a person who has a lack of criminal history. They may make a traffic stop, pull this person over, run their background and say, oh, wow, you're 25 years old and have no criminal record, or you're 40 years old, you have no felonies. Historically, African-Americans were portrayed as criminals, and this faculty member was completely out of line perpetuating that stereotype. Yeah. Now, all black, black people have some contact with the law, have some type of criminal history. He was racist. He was completely out, out of line. His comment was uncalled for, and I'm glad he's no longer employed. All right, folks, it's a nearby state, New Jersey, where Rutgers University has inaugurated its first black president, Jonathan Holloway, earlier this month. He is the 21st president in the school's 250-year history. He's been in office for 18 months, but his inauguration was postponed due to the pandemic. Before Rutgers, he held leadership positions at some of the nation's most prestigious universities, like Northwestern University and Yale. And so, uh, so we certainly congratulate him on his inauguration. All right, folks, we come back. We're going to talk Bayou Classic. Our wrap, if you will. Also, we'll talk to Rodney Brooks about fixing the racial wealth gap in America, and we'll pay tribute to some of our uh, elders, now ancestors, including golfer Lee Elder, Congresswoman Carrie Meek, uh, as well as one of the world's top fashion designers, Virgil Abloh. That is all next on Roller Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Don't forget to download our app. Our goal is to get 20,000, excuse me. 50,000 downloads by the end of December. So please uh, download it on your Apple Android phone, Apple TV, Android TV, Roku, Samsung TV, Xbox, Amazon, Fire Stick as well. And also, if you want to support Roller Martin Unfiltered, please do so by joining our Brina fan, Funk Fan Club, where every dollar you give goes to support what we do every single day. And so, Cash App, Dollar Sign, RM Unfiltered. PayPal is R. Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zell is rolling at rollingsmartin.com. Rolling at rollingmartinunfiltered.com. Folks, I'll be back in a moment. 
Alexa, play our favorite song again. Okay. I only Maureen is saving big holiday shopping at Amazon. So now she's free to become Maureen the Marrier. Food is her love language. And she really loves her grandson. Like, really loves. Hey, I'm Donnie Simpson. What's up? I'm Lance Gross, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. In the United States, there were more than 400,000 children in foster care waiting to be adopted. Of those children, 23% were black, 44% white, and 22% Hispanic. In 2020, more than 50% of adoptions that involve a public agency were for, for white uh, children. 17% were black and 20% were Hispanic. Uh, November, of course, is uh, Adoption Awareness Month. Joining us right now uh, is uh, Jasmine Sanders, who joins us from Los Angeles. Jasmine, glad to have you on the show. Um, so let's talk about uh, this issue. Uh, why is adoption uh, so near and dear to you? Uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. I follow you on social media. <laughs> You've been on our show several times. It's my first chance being on your show. And what a wonderful opportunity to talk about adoption. Um, first of all, I'm adopted. Um, and for many years, it was a subject that I did not feel comfortable speaking about. I didn't talk about it, A, because I was ashamed, uh, and B, because there were so many um, misconceptions about adoption, about children who were adopted. And I said, once I got a big enough platform, I would use every opportunity that I had to try my best to dispel those notions and convince people that you know, children who are in need of families, there's no need to be afraid of them, that we need love like anybody else. And so every opportunity that I get, even outside of November, I talk about adoption and I try to spread as much information, true information, as I can. Um, and when we look at these numbers, I mean, there's just so many uh, African-American children uh, who go without. Uh, and um, so what about the outreach? What about that effect? Because we look at the numbers, an increasing number of Americans are deciding not to have children. Right. And the other thing is the, there are so many people who are deciding not to have children. There are a lot of women uh, who wait. You know, it's no secret that 
you know, as a woman, it's very difficult in this country, especially as a black woman. Uh, we spend the majority of our lives working and, and climbing that ladder of success. And by the time you look up, you're in your 40s, you know, sometimes your late 40s, maybe even 50s before you take a breath, uh, which is required, right? Because you have to give it all of your time. That is your baby. And by the time you look up and you're ready to have kids, it's either too late, too difficult, or financially, you know, maybe you're not in a position to do so. And for whatever reason, a lot of people don't think about adoption because either the the stereotype that's out there or it's just kind of like the last resort. But then the thing that really upsets me the most is we become highly critical when we see other people outside of our race adopting these black children. And I have a problem with that. It's one thing that, you know, we say it takes a village to raise a kid. But you can't get mad when other villages are raising our children if we don't want to. Questions uh, from our panel. Let me start uh, with you, Maurice. Maurice? Oh, yes, yes, sorry. Sorry, Roland. Question for Jasmine? Yeah, Jasmine, so how long have you, how long have you been in this business? I've been in, you mean in radio? Yes. Uh, probably 30 plus years. Okay. And um, how did you first get involved with adoption? Um, well, I, as soon as I got into radio, because I, I found out very early on that I was adopted. I found out when I was about maybe 11 or 12. Um, my parents did not, my bio, I call them my forever family. They did not tell me I was adopted. I found out I was adopted. And as soon as I got into a position, as soon as I graduated college, I got a job in radio and I immediately started working with the, the local foster care agency there in Nashville. And every city that I've worked in, every community that I've been in, I've tried my best to do some sort of event or get involved locally. Uh, working with agencies that deal with foster kids or even uh, people who are actually trying to adopt kids or even people who've been adopted and are trying to find their their um, biological families. Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, my mom, she, she actually had foster children in our home when we were growing up. We had approximately about 10 or so foster children. She would take them in when they were having problems with their family. Oh, wow. Kudos to your mom. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So you understand that, well, you know, they're just children. They need love, too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Question from Amakongo. Uh, first of all, Ms. Sanders, thank you for all of the incredible work that you've been doing over these years. Uh, I, I have a little bit of a concern about older kids in the foster system. You know, we hear all of these terrible stories and the like. The question I have for you is, for those of us who may not be adopting but have a passion for these older kids who are in the system, are there ways that we can network with, support, become mentors? Are there programs out there that allow people to have that type of engagement with them? There absolutely are. All you have to do is Google. It's readily available at your fingertips. And the thing is, if, okay. you, if you really just take a moment and consider how awful it must be to know that either your, your mother left you or you were removed from the home of the only family you've ever known. You've been placed in a system where they care very little about you. There's no one there to care for you, to listen to any problems that you may have. Everything that you own is in a trash bag. 
So by all accounts, everything around you says that you mean nothing. You are nothing. Society is not paying any attention to you. One time out of the year, you have 30 days that is dedicated to hopefully, whether it's the media, TV, some kind of campaign that's bigger than, because this is also Pet Adoption Awareness Month. So you are also wow. in competition mm. with dogs and mm. cats. So that's what you're wow. up against. So can you imagine what you're dealing with as a young person, maybe you're 12, 14, 15 years old, what kind of adult do you think you would be? So my thing is when you're thinking about these young kids who are in these organizations, give of your time. Sometimes all they need is just to hear someone cares about them, that someone is concerned about their well-being, that you care about their heart is broken. You care that they don't feel as if they are worthy of someone listening to what a terrible day they had. We already know how it is as adults in this world. It's hard, it's hard out here. And so we have family, we have friends, we have Facebook, Instagram, we have all of these things at our fingertips. Imagine having nothing. Julian. First of all, Jasmine, thank you for sharing uh, your story and for uh, putting a face onto the adoption issue, which I think is really important. But secondly, I want to raise a question. You talked about uh, transracial adoption. You didn't call it that. You said we get mad when other people adopt our kids. But my experience in the foster care system has been that there's enormous racism, that first of all, some children are taken from their homes when they don't need to be. When you Absolutely. have some artificial rule that says you have to one have one bedroom per child, I would just spend Thanksgiving at the house I grew up in. I'd look around there and say, "How did my mother raise five kids in this itty bitty house?" And, and you know, <laughs> one bathroom, true. and we figured it out. Uh, but the second thing is when black folks who have limited resources want to go to adopt, they also often have challenges. And I have at least two sister friends who've tried to adopt. They got to that age, as you said, you get to be about 50. You didn't have the kid. Now you want one. But if you don't have the money or the partner or this, you can't get one. So while I agree with you, any port in a storm for a child is important. But what can we do with the foster care system to eradicate some of the racism there that makes it more difficult for Black folks to adopt our own? I agree 1,000%. But I think, first of all, what we have to do is acknowledge that there is a problem. I think the biggest issue that I have is 30 days is not enough. 30 days is all that we allocate towards a system that we already know is completely broken. Not only the system itself, but the infrastructure in itself that doesn't really even support the system that's there. When you consider the archaic way that it is set up, and you're absolutely right, when you go to adopt, all you want to do is give the kid love. And they make it almost impossible, insurmountable, the types of hoops you have to jump through. But my, my thing is, why are we not speaking out enough about this? Instead, the majority of the time, you would not imagine the number of battles that I have to fight with people just in a conversation about kids who are in the system. And I'm like, why are we fighting amongst ourselves talking about these children, perpetuating the stereotypes about these children who really need love. So I think, first of all, it's acknowledging the problem and, and, and really sounding the alarm on a much larger scale. It has to be more than just a few of us who are fighting this battle. But I, I, if you think about it, in the midst of, you know, 
the economic issue that we're up against, the social injustice in this country. There are so many other battles that we're fighting that unfortunately foster care falls so far down that it's nowhere near on even anybody's radar. When I go and talk to people, it's the last thing people want to talk about. Even during Foster Care Awareness Month, I get really emotional about it because I'm just grateful, Roland, that you would even give me this platform. It's hard to even get people to even give a moment's time to talk about this. And I know when December rolls in, all we'll be talking about is Christmas trees and Christmas gifts and 2022. And there will still be children waiting to be adopted, going into another year of wanting someone to love them, wanting a family, and still fighting these stereotypes and this broken system that's in place. So you're right. You know, how do we get people who are in position to really care to talk about this so we can take it to a higher level so that we can change the infrastructure that is so incredibly broken? Right. I wish I had the answer to that, but I don't. All right. Jasmine Sanders, we certainly appreciate it. Thanks a bunch. Thank uh, and uh, again, hopefully uh, more people will, uh, will look at the idea of adopting, uh, especially uh, the many African-American children who are looking for a home. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. All right, folks, we come back. We'll talk about the racial wealth gap, how we can close it. Also, Thank you. Thank uh, you so we much. will talk, uh, talk about uh, the fun we had this weekend covering the Bayou Classic uh, in New Orleans, the 48th annual Bayou Classic. Uh, we partnered with Coca-Cola on that, so we look forward to sharing that with you as well. Plus, uh, we will pay tribute to uh, three uh, folks uh, who are now ancestors. Uh, including golfer Lee Elder. Folks, you're watching Roller Mark Unfiltered on the Blackstone Network. Alexa, play our favorite song again. Okay. Spin class was brutal. Well, you can try using the Buick's massaging seat. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Can I use Apple CarPlay to put some music on? Sure. It's wireless. Pick something we all like. Okay, hold on. What's your Buick's Wi-Fi password? Buick Envision 2021. Oh, you should pick something stronger. That's really predictable. That's a really tight spot. Don't worry. I used to hate parallel parking. Me too. Hey. You really outdid yourself. Yes, we did. The all-new Buick Envision, an SUV built around you. All of you. Once upon a time, there lived a princess with really long hair who was waiting for a prince to come save her. But really, who has time for that? Let's go. She ordered herself a ladder with prime one-day delivery, and she was out of there. Now, her hairdressing empire is killing it. And the prince, well, who cares? Prime changed everything. Hi, I'm Vivian Green. You're hey everybody, this is your man Fred Hammond, and you're watching Roland Martin, my man, Unfiltered. You've often heard us talk about the racial wealth gap. Of course, it has long plagued this, long plagued this nation. Uh, but what can you do to combat it? His new, new book is called 
Fixing the Racial Wealth Gap, Racism and Discrimination. Rodney Brooks provides financial literacy and security for black Americans with the knowledge to build generational wealth. He joins us now from his home of Silver Spring, Maryland. Rodney, glad to have you uh, on the show. And by the way, Rodney is, uh, along with me, folks, a fellow inductee into the, the 2021 National, National Association of Black Journalists Hall of Fame. And so that virtual uh, ceremony is going to be held on this Saturday. And so, uh, Rodney, congrats uh, on that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. All right. So, okay, we, so we hear a lot about the racial wealth gap. Uh, and others, I mean, obviously, others say the only way you can fix it is with reparations. Well, that's, that's, that requires hell of a whole lot. So if you're waiting on that, you might be waiting for a very long time. Uh, <laughs> so the question is, what are you saying that can be done? Well, right now. Yes. Well, one of the things, uh, one of the things I really stress is financial literacy. You know, and um, we don't, we don't have, we don't know enough. Um, we don't talk to our children about money. We don't talk to our children about finances. And um, so, you know, the big part is just talking to, talking to your children, talking to that next generation about financial planning. And, um, you know, a big part of that is getting some financial help where you need it, which, which may involve getting a financial planner. Or, you know, and we, we know there's not, you know, a whole lot of, um, of black financial, of certified financial planners, um, but there are some. And I think, um, you know, there's the Association of African American um, um, Advisors that is a, that can be a source, but you know, if you if you need help, you know, with your finances, and we know black people don't invest in stocks, black people aren't saving for retirement, so we know black Americans need some help. So um, get it where you need it. You know, and I try to make this thing as simple as possible, and for us to think differently when it comes to money, Rodney. And, and I remember I was speaking in um, and it was a housing complex in Bryan, Texas. And I remember this woman, she was saying, look, I don't have no money. She says, I have no extra money. She kept going on and on. Uh, and then that was a, uh, she had a soft drink. And I said, well, I said, got a question. How much did that cost? And she's like, what do you mean? I said, what you're drinking? How much did that cost? And she said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, how much did it cost? I said, did you pay for it? She says, yes. Then she told me. I said, so... I said, did you have a drink, a soft drink? Could you drink, drink water? Now, I said, that was a buck 70. I said, so, I just asked her, how many soft drinks do you buy a week? I said, how many bags of chips do you buy a week? And, and she, she looked at me and she said, so you're telling me that if I didn't buy the soft drink, I could say that. I said, yeah, I said, let's just talk about it. I said, if you didn't buy a soft drink and a bag of chips a week, that's $354, right? I said, in a month, that's $16. I said, in a year, I said, walk through it. She looked at me like I was crazy. And she said, is that simple? I said, yeah, actually it is. And, and, and I think part of the problem here is that we make this complicated when it's not complicated, but if somebody doesn't explain it to you in that way, then you really don't understand how it all, what it all means. Well, that, that's, you know, 
that's a, a really good point. It's 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 simple, but um, you have to make some choices. And and one of the things that concerns me is is that when when black people are um, offered um, a 401k, many are not signing up for it. And, you know, that's what they call free money when, when your employer matches, uh, you know, up to well, 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 you know, because the person who's, how they may be thinking, I can't afford to sign up for that 401k because I need all of that money to pay my bills. Mm-hmm. That's sort of how that... Per- so, so I get that thinking, but what you're saying is, yes, you then have to adjust your bills to accommodate the 401k because you're going to need and want that savings. Yes, and... Okay, and... and when it, You know, you can't wait... You can't wait until you're 50, 60 years old to say, uh-oh, I didn't save anything for retirement. You know, you know financial planners always say it's never too late... But, but it is. Um, you know, you're you're stuck in that cycle. If you wait until you're 60 and say, oh, oh, okay, then then you're stuck getting Social Security. Um, and that's why I have, uh, you know, I stress compound interest. Um, you know, people people saving money and then that money is is uh, growing with interest, earning interest, and. Uh, you know, once you look at the numbers on that, it, it gives you a whole new perspective on saving. Um, and, and once you start going into this as well, um, I mean, when you start looking at decision-making, do you buy a car, do you lease a car? How long do you do it? Do you pay it off? Uh, things along those lines. I remember, I remember when I got my Navigator, this was probably two, it was 2008, uh, my, my, my financial advisor, uh, you know, she said, oh, she says, uh, 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 don't buy it in cash. I said, mm, yes, I will. And because I didn't, I didn't want to have to sit, I wasn't going to sit there and pay the interest on it. Well, the same navigator I've had 13 years. So I paid 49000 for the vehicle. I haven't had a car on 13 years. Now, yes, there's been maintenance, things along those lines, but I made the decision because my deal was, I was not, a, I sat down, I was like, well, I'm not about to pay this interest on the damn car when I got the money right now. Well, you know, actually, uh, I'm glad you brought up cars because that's one of my pet peeves. And, and, and it's the way when you go to buy a car, car, the car dealers will talk to you about the payment, not how much the car costs, okay, and not how much the interest is. You know, it, you know in, uh, I've had experiences where I said, I said, I don't, you know, I don't, care what the payment is. I want to know what the interest is and what the price is. And the, and the car salesman said, why? It's like, <laughs> but, you know, it's to their event because, because people going in there looking for a low payment and they take advantage of that. And, um, you know, and one point in the book, I look at, you know, what it costs, um, what it costs, you know, to buy a car Paying two percent interest versus you know eleven or twelve percent interest, and 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 that amount is enormous, Roland. It's, it's it's really scary when you look at those kind of numbers. Yeah, because we factor in the credit report, and then your interest rate is based upon that particular credit report. You know what? And I I, I, I do really love uh, you're stuck on stupid people out here. You know, I, I had I got somebody who's in our chat talking about oh that comment was dumb. You said you you can you can. Uh, 
move your way to wealth uh, by buck seventy at a time. Well, actually, you can, because the whole point to the idiots out there, Bob Sanders, uh, who's running his mouth on YouTube, the point of this is to get somebody in the habit of making different choices with how they spend money. And so if somebody right now is not saving anything, they literally have no saving. We ain't even got to investing. It's getting somebody started on the path of rethinking their spending habits. And so then when you do that, then you start thinking about, well, how much time am I eating out versus making my food? How much time am I spending on designer items versus I'm buying this? And so that's really, that's really what it is. And to your point, we, we, we often don't have folks having a conversation. Van Jones told me this here, you know, his former wife was white. And Van said, when he, when he said, when my wife's daddy calls her, the conversations they have about money are totally different and the conversations I have with my parents. He said, my parents are calling and it's about so-and-so need $300 for this or $400 for this. He said, whereas their conversations are about annuities and trust and things along those lines. He said, it's a totally different conversation. And so that's what I'm trying to get for the fools out there who, who, who say, oh, you shouldn't be thinking that small. If you can get somebody who's saving zero, start saving a dollar a week, at the end of the month, they are held a lot further than they were at the beginning of the month. And, and as it as it grows, as it grows, they'll, they'll be more confident. But but just as importantly, they are teaching their children to save as well. And so you're having an impact uh, because you know we talk about generational wealth, and black people don't talk about money. Um, you know, it's almost like it's a taboo subject, um, and. It's so important because um, you know just just the conversation you just you just had about what the what the difference is between between the you know the white family and the black family. We need to talk about money. We need to tell our children. We need to be stop being scared to tell our children how much money we earn, um, and we need to learn about financial literacy so we can teach. So we should learn alongside our kids uh, about saving and investing. Now you were you were the deputy managing editor of the USA Today Money section. Um, how did you learn? Did did you have a family teaching that, or did you acquire that knowledge? As an adult, I acquired that knowledge as an adult, and I tried to pass it on to my children. Um, you know, and and I can't blame my parents. They didn't. You know, it's not something that they knew, but it's something that I knew, so I knew I had to pass it on to my children. So, so you know, I started by uh, gifting them stock, uh, rolling, and and you know, first thing they did was sell it, but <laughs> but, but at least they knew about stock. Um, so. Um, and and I still, I, you know, I still talk, you know, talk to each one of them about 401ks. Um, so that's, we have those financial conversations. I have three children, and I talk to all of them about um, the first thing they do when they get a new job is I say, did you sign up for the 401k? And that's the kind of conversations we, we as black families need to have. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I'm going to go to my panelist, Julianne Malvo, uh, who's an economist. She's been uh, shaking her head uh, uh, frequently. Julianne, uh, go right ahead. Your question or comment for Rodney Brooks. Well, first of all, Rodney, thank you for the book. I think it's really important. Uh, and congratulations. 
Thank you. You made so many points that were, yeah, I was shaking my head at some point. I was laughing uh, because (laughs) the lack of knowledge in our community is is massive. But it's not, we can't blame anybody uh, from the past. We have to look at it from a contemporary standpoint in terms, like you said, why don't you take the 401k? If someone's going to match you, that's serious free money. If you put 1%, 2%, 5%, it's really free money. And there's so many other things to say. But I want to talk to you about another issue because Roland opened the conversation by saying, don't wait for reparations. Now, I am a member of NARC, the National African American Reparations Commission. And those who know me know I'm very passionate about the issue of reparations. I ain't waiting for them, but I'm going to fight for them. So, no, I'm, you know, talking, I'm talking about the people who are waiting. Ain't nobody waiting. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. <laughs> Julian. Julian, yes, they are. <laughs> there, there, there are people who right now are not even thinking about saving or investing because they're waiting on reparations. And what I'm saying is, if you're going to do it, do both. But stop waiting. Just like there are a lot of black people who grew up, man, I can't wait till my ship come in. Do you even live near water? Your ship ain't coming. I know, I'm, I'm sick. You know what I'm talking about. It's a whole bunch. Well, you know all the phrases. There are a lot of people in our community who are waiting on other things to happen. Man, if I hit that lottery, you not. So stop spending $100 a month on them lottery tickets. The issue is both and. We both have to struggle for economic justice and we have to be financially responsible. And that's the kind of conversation we need to have about both ends. Rodney, take a minute to talk a bit more about the credit score, because I think a lot of people don't understand where you don't pay your bills, those chickens will come home to roost, to use a uh, metaphor, Roland. But uh, if you don't, you know, when you, the, what's the difference between having a 750 and a 650 credit score? Um, well, you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of people don't understand what goes into a credit score. And um, so... Um, you know, so um, so the, the the difference between that between getting that two percent interest, um, you know, when you buy a car and, and ten, you know, eight or ten percent is 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 the difference between that seven twenty and that uh, you know uh, six hundred credit score, um, and and you know, in my book, I saw that I have the chart, but um, you know, it has you know, it includes history, but um, 35% is your payment history. 30% is based on, on your outstanding debt. Um, you know, and 15% is the length of your credit history. Um, so, uh, and then um, as you, if you, if you um, get new credit cards, you know, if you, if you even apply for new credit cards, that does count. Um, you know, you know, my wife and I were looking at getting rid of a couple of credit cards and, um, and we did. We didn't do it. We just stopped using them because even getting rid of credit cards can lower your credit score. It's just um, there's just so many things that people don't understand about credit scores. Well, I tell you, I tell you, for me, uh, look, I look. I went through a bankruptcy 2004 and then 2008, and my whole deal was, you know what? I started breaking down how. What are you actually using credit for? I mean, seriously. I mean. It really came down to just two things, a car or a house. That's really what it came down to. And so for me, then when I realized, uh, they were like, well, Roland, you keep paying stuff off Hershey Credit Score. I was like, you know what? Well, damn the credit score. I said, I'm just going to focus on being debt-free and so damn the credit score. Because, look, if it, it just got to the point where 
where it's a gang. I did, I did a whole one hour show when I was on TV One on credit. And it is a game that is being played that, that, that we're getting screwed with. And it's the people who are getting furniture on credit, who are, who are, who are living that, that's who they're targeting when it comes to the credit deal. And I just got to the point right where I was like, you know what? Uh, damn it, y'all, give me whatever number you want to, but I ain't trying to buy another house or another car. If I do, I'm gonna pay it in cash because I'm trying to live a debt-free debt existence and I didn't want to get trapped in that whole world of, well, well, this car, don't pay it all off. Pay, I'm like, damn that. Look, I ain't trying to pay it off. Pay it off. I ain't trying to even look at it. <laughs> well, you know, one, one, thing, one thing I think a lot of people don't realize is that um, part of your credit score depends on how much of your available credit you're using. So, so when you max out your credit card, you're, you're, you're basically damaging your credit score. Well, I, I, look, I, I got you on that one. All right, let's, oh, I'm gonna Congo, your question for Rodney. First of all, thank you, uh, congrats, thank you for what you're sharing with us tonight, and congrats to you both on the induction into the NMJ uh, Hall of thank, Fame. I think that's, thank that's you. awesome. Thank you. Yes, uh, my, my question is for, for I, I live in Southeast D.C., and for those of you who are watching and don't know, it's one of the you know, underserved communities here in Washington, D.C., like many across the country. With many of us who live in these communities doing, you know, working and, and really just concentrating on maybe working full time and not being around our, our kids so much because we're so caught up in just the daily grind, do you think it's time that we start getting these financial literacy programs in our schools so that the kids can start young during the day learning about that? And quite honestly, I've seen situations where they've learned stuff that they've brought home to their parents to teach them. Oh, I yes, I think that's critical. So, you know, more and more states are actually mandating financial literacy in high school. Um, but, you know, one one um, good example um, is, is the Aerial Academy in um, Chicago, and, and I know Roland knows about it, where, where they start teaching kids in kindergarten, um, and by the wow. third grade, they're, they're basically turning over uh, uh, stock portfolios for them to manage. Uh, so, um, and so, and the, and the good thing about that program at the Aerial Academy, um, John, started by John Rogers, is is that that the parents get involved, and while the kids are learning and and they end up uh, earning money on stock portfolios, that their parents are learning also. And I think that's that's a really key part of this is 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 um, helping their parents learn as the children learned, um, and, and that encourages them even to learn even more about financial literacy. I think it should be mandatory in every public school. Maurice? Well, first, first off, I want to thank you for addressing this topic, and congratulations on your book. I think it's very important for our community to educate ourselves about financial literacy. I wanted to address Black-owned businesses. How do, how do you think we go about getting funding and visibility of our Black-owned businesses and, in turn, get each other to consistently support our Black-owned businesses that are within our communities? Um, you know, I, I did do a chapter on, on Black-owned businesses and, and why, why they fail at such a high rate. Um, and, and, you know, one person put it, um, you know, one of the experts I talked to put it in, in, the, in the way I really hadn't thought about it is, is, is we, we go for um, low-hanging fruit 
Um, so when it comes to businesses, instead of going for something that's going that's different from everybody else out there, we're going for what what else what everybody else is doing. Um, we're we're also undercapitalized, and and most of the time we don't have a business plan. All of those things uh, lead to a a. Uh, a really high failure rate. Um, and, you know, I've talked to Roland before about uh, businesses and um, and the importance of growing beyond the one-person business. Um, but, um, you know, I think, you know, think about, not just thinking about it, but writing down a, writing a, a written business plan is imperative. Um, and And, you know, looking at your market and looking at, um, who you're going to be selling to, um, and we don't do that enough, and I think that's that's why we fail. All right, folks. The book is called "Fixing the Racial Wealth Gap: Racism and Discrimination." Put us here, but this is how we can save future generations. Uh, Rodney A. Brooks, folks, uh, get a copy of it and please uh, employ what he lays out in it. Rodney, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Okay, thank you. All right, folks, uh, got to go to uh, a break. We come back. Uh, again, um, we lost some uh, major figures this weekend. We'll share uh, those with you uh, when we come back. Plus, we'll do a recap of the Value Classic this weekend right here on Roller Martin Unfiltered on the Black Show Network. Alexa, play our favorite song again. Okay. I only have is saving big holiday shopping at Amazon. So now she's free to become Maureen the Marrier. Food is her love language. And she really loves her grandson. Like, really loves. Y'all know who Roland Martin is. He got the ass got on. He do the news. It's fancy news. Keep it rolling. Right here. Rolling. Roland Martin. <laughs> right now. You are watching Roland Martin. Unfiltered. I mean, could it be any other way? Really? It's Roland Martin. So sad news in the world of fashion. Virgil Abloh, the leading designer who successfully uh, fused uh, streetwear and high fashion, 
has passed away. His death was announced Sunday by Abloh's off-white label in the luxury group Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy. Uh, Abloh battled a rare aggressive form of cancer, cardiac angioscarcoma. Since his diagnosis in 2019, he had undergone numerous challenging treatments but chose to keep it private. He was the artistic director for Louis Vuitton's menswear. Again, he's dead at the age of 41. The pioneering black congresswoman from Florida, Carrie Meek, has passed away at the age of 95. She became the first black woman to serve in the Florida Senate since the 1800s when she was elected in 1978. She started her congressional career in 1992 and at the age of 66, her son, her son Congressman Kendrick Meek, uh, who replaced his mother, said uh, she treated everyone she came across with respect no matter what job they held. The Speaker of the House, you go out of your way um, to speak to the people that clean your office. And I think about that, um, which interesting because members of Congress feel that that person that's cleaning the office can't do anything for them. But she said that person that cleans the office or clean the bathrooms would probably do more for you than the speaker would. And which is true. Uh, she knew all the names of the janitorial staff. She knew the people in the cafeteria. She knew the Capitol Police officers. She knew the people that worked in the garage, in the Rayburn building, the Cannon building by name. You know, not, hey, he works or she, she knew them and she would talk to them and they would, you know, do things like, you know, Miss Meek, you know, the weather's changing or, or this is happening or that's happening. And that was her friend that those were her friends here in this institution. Julian, uh, your thoughts uh, about uh, the passing of Congresswoman Carrie Meek and Virgil Abloh. It was so good to see Kendrick, um, talking about his mom, she really was one of the most dynamic, outstanding, and as he said, caring person. She spoke to everybody. She knew everybody. She was my soror. Um, I can't say she was my friend because we didn't have it like that, but she was a, a beloved acquaintance that I really cared a lot about. Um, she will be missed. She really put her footprint on the Congress, and she cared about everybody, but especially about the little people. She never hesitated to remind us that she was a descendant of enslaved people, the descendant of sharecroppers. And that's a sensibility that I like to see many of our African-American elective officials embrace. I'm a Congo. Uh, first of all, with Representative Meek, it, it, it's a demonstration of the class that we're missing from so many of our, our, our Congress folks today and representatives. And it, it's sad to see her passing. And it reminds me of a story or a saying that I believe Joe Madison said, be careful, be nice to everybody on your way up because you might see them on your way down. And, you know, Representative Meek was, you know, <laughs> just took care of everybody. And that's just really important. Uh, and, and as it relates to Brother Virgil, we also have to be mindful of the fact that this happened over the last few days, but today is, is Chadwick Bozeman's birthday who we also lost to his form of cancer at a very young age. And so to see, and you know, Chadwick and I are born in the same year. And so to see such young talent, such pioneering young brothers just be taken from us so unexpectedly, it, it hurts, man. And to see all the tributes to, to, to Virgil out there, you know, it, it's, it's great to see that he was appreciated and loved. But, you know, it, it really just hurts, man, because 
they say the good die young, but you know, Kara, Kara Meek was 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 an elder, and, and she was great as well. So we just pay respect to all of them. Maurice, uh, I think you're on mute, Maurice. Representative Meek, she was she was an icon. She fought for our rights, and it's it's really sad to hear about her passing. That's why I always say it's important to give individuals their flowers while they're on the earth and can receive them. And I know she received her flowers, and um, her family is in my prayers. Now, Virgil, he broke barriers. It's important for little black boys and girls to see someone who looks like them in an important position like this. He was the first to design for first African American to design for Louis Vuitton. He was young, but in his 41 years, he made a tremendous impact on the world. He changed the fashion industry. And I know many people who are who were inspired by his work. And it, as my brother just stated, it did remind me of Chadwick Boseman's passing. They were both put on this earth. They made their impact, and they were called home early. They both did what they needed to do and made that tremendous impact on the world. All right, folks, we sure appreciate all three of you joining us on the panel today. Uh, thank you so very much, Julian Amakongo and uh, Mel Reese. Got to go to break. We come back. We'll pay tribute to Lee Elder, the first African-American to play in the Masters, legendary golfer who passed away at the age of 87. That is next on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Oh, that spin class was brutal. Well, you can try using the Buick's massaging seat. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Can I use Apple CarPlay to put some music on? Sure. It's wireless. Pick something we all like. Okay, hold on. What's your Buick's Wi-Fi password? Buick Envision 2021. Oh, you should pick something stronger that's really predictable. That's a really tight spot. Don't worry. I used to hate parallel parking. Me too. Hey. Really outdid yourself. Yes, we did. The all-new Buick Envision. An SUV built around you. All of you. Betty is saving big holiday shopping at Amazon. So now, she's free to become Bear Hug Betty. Settle in, kids. You'll be there a while. Ooh, where are you going? Folks, Black Star Network is here. Hold no punches! A real uh, revolutionary right now. I support this man, Black Media. He makes sure that our stories are told. I thank you for being the voice of Black America, Roland. Hey, Black, I love y'all. All momentum we have now, we have to keep this going. The video looks phenomenal. See, this difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. You can't be Black-owned media and be scared. It's time to be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You dig? Hi, I'm Eric Nolan. I'm Shantae Moore. Hi, my name is Latoya Luckett, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. The golf world suffered a major loss with the death of Lee Elder. 
Folks, uh, he, of course, uh, was a tremendous force uh, in the game of golf. Uh, not only was the first African-American to uh, play in the Masters, uh, he also broke the color barrier in the Ryder Cup, making the 1979 American squad and going 1-3-0 in the United States 17-11 win over Europe. He won four times on the PGA Tour. Uh, in addition to that, uh, he was uh, a source of pride for many golfers uh, and someone who they reached out to for advice and counsel. Uh, this year, he joined Jack Nicklaus and Gary Player as an, as an honorary starter at the Masters for the first time. Health issues prevented Elder from hitting a ceremonial first tee shot, but he was recognized for his accomplishments. Lee Elder is the first black man to compete in the Masters. And in doing so, blazed a trail that will inspire the game of golf and future generations of players. We are delighted today to have with us a number of black golf professionals who are proud members of the PGA of America. They undoubtedly were inspired by Lee Elder and his message that the game of golf belongs to everyone. Today, Lee Elder will inspire us and make history once more, not with a drive, but with his presence, strength, and character. Lee, it is my privilege to say you have the honors. And this was the tribute video posted uh, by the PGA Tour on their social media accounts. Yes, in the middle. Lee Elder to stand on that first tee. It's a wonderful recognition, but let me tell you what actually transpired. Jaime Diaz approached me and said, look, why don't you phone Augusta and see if they would consider this? The chairman of Augusta thought it was a very good idea, and I thank Augusta National for doing the right thing. And I'm so pleased to leave, just to be on the first tee and create, create some new history for Augusta. Lee was the first black player to play at Augusta. It was really nice of Augusta to turn around and, and honor him and have him be part of what we're doing. I think it sends a huge message that times are changing for black culture, African-Americans, just minorities in general. That was a huge statement from Augusta, having Lee with Jack and, and Gary, who are obviously the two biggest legends of the game.
Joining me now is Jeff Champ, family friend and father of professional golfer Cameron Champ, who you saw in that video there. Renee Powell, the LPGA, PGA head golf professional at Clearview Golf Club uh, from Canton, Ohio, as well as a journalist uh, and fellow golfer Roy Johnson. Glad to have all three uh, of you here. Uh, Renee, uh, you get honors uh, to uh, share your thoughts uh, about Lee Elder. Well, you know, I, I have known Lee for a long time. We first met when, when I was actually a teenager, um, played a practice round with him in a golf tournament in Miami. We have uh, the same year won the UGA National and then uh, actually went on the tours the same year back in 1967, he on the PGA Tour and me on the LPGA Tour. He, over the years, has just been a great friend and I was so stunned uh, to hear of his loss last night uh, because I just talked to him about uh, within the last week. He called me and um, said that, you know, hey, I've, I've got something I'm really excited about, something that a project the two of us can do together next year during the, uh, uh, at the time of the U.S. Open. So he was looking forward to that. I was looking forward to talking to him after Thanksgiving and um, things happened. Uh, um, but he was there. Um, you know, his his attitude was always the same. He he was a gracious person, and I know uh, I was so happy to be able to to be sitting on the first tee in Augusta this year when he had the honor of being one of the starters. Um, it was something he looked forward to for a long time, and and you know, it's it's really sad when you you lose a good friend. Uh, Jeff Champ, uh, you, I had the honor of uh, uh, leading the Q&A between your son Cameron Champ uh, and Lee Elder last year, March of last year, at the MAC Invitational. Uh, Lee couldn't attend in person due to COVID, also because of uh, health reasons. Uh, we knew he had been battling uh, some serious issues. Uh, but uh, you often uh, talk with him, uh, and, and he often uh, shared uh, insights with your son, Cameron, who's now on the PGA Tour. Yes, you know what? Um, you know, I got, to meet, I got to meet Lee, and well, um, I got to meet him at the Masters, actually, but in uh, 2020, um, you know, we invited Lee to come out to the Mac Champ Invitational to be the guest speaker, and COVID happened. And he, you know, in 2021, uh, he he was actually the guest speaker because you were the MC there. But just to uh, meet somebody like that, you know, um, our family never had the opportunity to meet Charlie Sifford, Pete Brown, Calvin Pete, Ted Rhodes, and my dad passed. And I said we have to find a way to meet um, meet Lee. And it's amazing how I just did some homework on some more homework on Lee, and Lee actually went to Manual Arts, a high school in Los Angeles, where a bunch of champs went at Martha Luther King in Vermont. So just he's a great man. I got to spend this summertime with him. It was at his uh, birthday back in uh, July, and um, you know God bless God bless him. And I just want to say thank you so much for for paving the way to give my dad a chance to play this game, and now and now my son's playing this great this amazing game. Uh, Lee was, of course, native of Dallas, Texas. Uh, that was, uh, we had a great time uh, with the Q&A. And, and I've been actually, I literally got back uh, uh, yesterday from New Orleans and I was actually looking for uh, that video. So, Jeff, y'all might have to send it to me again because I wanted to uh, re-air it. 
Uh, and uh, it was a great conversation, him regaling us with uh, stories of uh, being on the PGA Tour. Uh, Roy Johnson, uh, you're a fellow golfer. You uh, uh, spent many years at Sports Illustrated. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, talking to uh, many athletes. Uh, and Lee Elder certainly was a groundbreaker. Rolling on days like this, it, uh, it, it is easy to think about the unique and sort of twisted, complicated history that African-Americans have had with the sport of golf. Uh, of course, every sport uh, refused to allow us to play for a certain period of time. But with golf, it was a little different. Certainly, they had a Caucasian-only clause on the PGA Tour up until 1961. But at the same time, they allowed us to, to caddy. They only allowed us to carry bags. So it was different than baseball and football where we, we really went on the field at all. We were, it was a tease. Golf teased us by allowing us on the field but not allowing us to play. Uh, of course, there's the United Golf Association, the, the UGA, which was a ground uh, for the development of a lot of black golfers, including uh, Lee Elder and others, and they were able to to utilize and hone their games just as blacks were in the Negro Leagues and, and other leagues. Uh, and so it's important for us to recognize that in this particular sport, not only were we excluded, but we were we were treated in a way uh, that was really second class. And so uh, to to honor someone who was groundbreaking, who was a pioneer, who endured things similar to Jackie Robinson, similar to Hank Aaron, the hate mail, uh, when he won his first tournament and qualified for the Masters, the leader of that tournament had to run onto the green and put his arms around him and lead him off and you know, take him in protective care to the clubhouse for the interviews uh, because there had been so many death threats. There were death threats uh, in Augusta at the Masters where he had to rent two separate homes and move back and forth between them in order to try to elude uh, folks who might see them you know, want to do him harm. So I think it's important to recognize not just what they accomplished in being the first, but what they had to endure to get there, to be there, to just swing the club, something you and I and other golfers may take for granted these days. Uh, it, it was a great honor. I never was able to meet him, but I did meet Charlie Sifford and, of course, Tiger Woods. And at one point, uh, you may remember this, uh, uh, Roland, I was the golf editor of Sports Illustrated. So think of that, you know, to come from Tulsa, Oklahoma, to someday be the golf editor of Sports Illustrated uh, at a time when golf was still having a very complicated relationship with African-Americans. I started covering sports in 1978, just four years after Lee Elder uh, stepped to the tee at the Masters and played those two rounds before not qualifying for the final weekend, but being cheered all along the way. So, uh, you know, as a sports writer, I, I honor him and give uh, him his due for the role he played even in my journey uh, and the journey that we all should acknowledge as we step up to the tee, uh, as we do our jobs, uh, as we are able to go about our lives, certainly still with challenges, but knowing that those who came before us endured a lot more. Um, you know, uh, I, not just, I first met Lee, Renee. It was an NAACP golf tournament around the Image Awards uh, years ago in, in um, Los Angeles. Uh, but in 2015, uh, my buddy Wendell uh, Haskins, he has his original T Golf Classic, uh, and uh, he actually uh, paired Lee with Amari Avery, a young sister uh, who is a tremendous golfer who was headed to play golf at USC. 
Uh, and um, again, we're sorting out our video, but I found this on YouTube and actually someone was shooting video and I was, I'm actually in their video while me shooting. Uh, and this was Lee, of course, teeing off on the first tee with Amari. Uh, and I actually, and it's driving me crazy uh, because I, we had some video that was stolen out of a bag and I still have some video, but I actually played that round with Amari and Lee, uh, and it was great uh, to be in the cart with him, his wife, us talking golf over 18 holes. Uh, you know very well what Roy was just talking about, how difficult it was for black folks uh, beginning uh, on uh, the PGA and the LPGA tour, what that life was like, what was really about. Well, you're absolutely right. And it, and it was not easy at all. Uh, you know, it was... Um, yeah, I think it was back in 1967. So um, while I had a... He had a challenging time on the PGA Tour, I also had a challenging time on the... On the LPGA tour, the big difference was, though, that the LPGA never had a Caucasian-only clause uh, that that they had to break down. Um, but you know, just being out there and uh, and at least you know during the uh, I know in the seventies more. I think we're uh, uh, Renee, hold tight one second because we're losing your signal. It's, it, one second, one second, Renee, we're losing your signal. We're going to get your signal uh, straight because it's, it's breaking up there. So y'all let me know when we have Renee fully back. Uh, Jeff, uh, uh, Jeff, I want to go to you. How important was it to have a Lee Elder share words of encouragement with Cameron uh, and, and other black golfers and for them to be able to talk to him and know him in his history? You know, it was it was so, it was so powerful. You know, just to just to see all the brown and black kids, you know, in a room together, um, and to hear what Lee went through, and you know, Lee's a character, um, and all the uh, perseverance and everything that that he went through um, is you know is is always going to help these young these young golfers. And and one of the things you know, including Cameron, you know, we 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 were always the only the only blacks at a, at a golf tournament. And so to 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 hear it from Lee, and then to hear it also from us, and and telling these kids, you know, and to have that many kids at one golf tournament, 108, 108, nine, uh, 108 brown and black kids, it was just amazing, you know. And uh, you know, Lee Lee told me he was coming back again this year. He's coming back, and um, so uh, God, you know, God God bless him. And uh, you know, again, I, I want to give my condolence to Sharon and the entire family. Uh, do we have a uh, Renee's signal fixed? All right, Renee, go ahead. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Go ahead. Okay. Um, what I what I was saying is that you know we all had challenges back in those days, and certainly um, Lee met those challenges. And to be able to watch him come through it all, to be able to watch him at Augusta, Augusta this year was absolutely wonderful. Um, Roy, uh, when we think about Charlie Silford, I got a chance to meet him when he was celebrated here with the, with the, um, um, with, um, uh, the Medal, Medal of Freedom um, here in D.C. And we think about um, uh, Teddy Rhodes, when you think about 
uh, you know, J James Black. You think about, I mean, all those cats. I remember t talking to James and meeting Calvin Pete and them talking about what it was like to be on tour and they had to tra travel their pots and pans and cooking for each other because they couldn't go into restaurants. Uh, feces being placed in golf holes. Uh, so they reached down and grabbed their ball, having to deal with that. Uh, and, and, just, and just all of the indignities uh, just to be able to play a game. Uh, and so when, when I love when people talk about the greats uh, of golf or the greats in any sport. And I always say, frankly, anything up until the mid-70s should have an asterisk next to it uh, because the black athlete did not have the same opportunity. And so when you hear these greats, the reality, we talk about who won X number of majors and X number of tournaments. Well, if black folks had the freedom to, sit, to be fully free, Americans that play in, play in the NCAA and play uh, college football and basketball and golf and these sports, uh, you, would, you, may, you may very well be talking about a Charlie Sifford or Teddy Rhodes or a Pete Brown or, uh, or a Lee Elder with multiple major winners and far more wins if they did not have to deal with the reality of being black playing. Oh, there's no question, Roland, that every sport should have an asterisk to it uh, for anything that transpired before the 1960s because of that, what you just absolutely said, because it was not a level playing field. It wasn't even a field that we were allowed to participate. Uh, when I think about what the athletes that you mentioned in golf endured, I think about cooperation, camaraderie, uh, and endurance. I mean, the, they, the camaraderie and cooperation they had to have with each other to lift each other because they were all going through these unbelievable circumstances that uh, too many have forgotten about. And I'm glad today that we have the opportunity to remind people that it wasn't just about playing the game. It was about enduring and surviving uh, even more so uh, than maybe some of the people in team sports. And again, this is, this is and Jeff could speak to this, this is an individual sport. We're at the end of, of, of the day, the beginning of the day. It's just you on that tee. You don't have a team. You don't have a team. You don't have a teammates. You don't have coaches. You just, it's you and that tee and that golf course. And so the fact that they had to endure that, that they still went on to perform at the highest level, uh, most of them by the time they got to the PGA and got their card uh, were past their prime. So we didn't even see them really in their in their prime for the most part uh but that's because they were excluded until 1961 so the fact that that they were able to support each other and still endure and prosper at the highest level of the game uh is something that should be remembered uh and not forgotten as we teach our histories we teach all of our history as everyone every golfer on the tour should know the history of that sport the good the bad and the ugly so they can appreciate it every time they step up to the team uh, well, one of the things that, R Renee uh, and, and Jeff, uh, is that one of the things that we can definitely say, anytime you saw Lee, even when he was battling his health issues, when he had the oxygen tank uh, uh, attached to him, you saw him at the Masters, uh, we had to take a break at the Mac Invitational Q&A. Lee always had a smile on his face, uh, and it, he, he, it was about joy. Uh, it was about joy, uh, Renee, uh, and, and he loved the game. Uh, he loves teeing it up, uh, and uh, I was joking with him big time. We're going to restream that tomorrow. I really want you all to see the Q&A. When we first restreamed it, we had some audio issues, and so we're going to try to get that out to you. But that was the one thing. He always had a huge smile on his face, Renee. He did. He loved golf, and uh, golf just made him happy, and it made him happy when he was able to do things 
with other people and for other people. I mean, he lived his life to play the game. He lived his life to be around others and to get them to enjoy the game of golf. I never saw Lee angry, ever. Well, I tell you, I tell you, Jeff, uh, I was just thinking about uh, we were playing the Jeffrey Osborne golf tournament uh, and uh, Lee and his wife came out of the hotel and uh, Lee was like, he said, yeah, we're going to the airport. Uh, we got our time and we were talking. I was like, Lee, you might want to double check your, your flight reservation. Uh, and then he didn't realize the distance we were from the Foxwood Casino to the airport. Uh, and he was like, uh, wait a minute. He said, we're going to miss this flight. I'm like, Lee, why don't you take my car and get to the damn airport? You're going to miss that flight. Uh, and he just cracked up laughing. Uh, and that's just uh, good to get the kind of guy he was. Roland, if I could just weigh in on that, because that's one of the things I thought about today. Every video, every piece of video that I saw on Lee Elder, uh, he was filled with joy. And knowing what he endured and yet, seemingly able to release the bitterness that it's easy to retain, to, to uh, forget about and put a shield up, uh, uh, you know, separating him from all he endured and not embracing that. Uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Renee. You said that he, he was filled with joy and, and enjoyed the game of golf. But, man, every time we saw him and every story you hear about him, he didn't hold on to what happened to him. And some athletes do. So it, it, it pains some. It breaks some. Uh, and some it even it even kills, but it seems that he was somehow able to separate himself and his heart from that which he saw, that which he experienced, the negatives that he endured. And man, that's a real that's a real gift. It is, and Lee didn't have any. I mean, he always saw the bright side of things and wanted others to also see that and feel that. Well, look, we certainly appreciate uh, everyone sharing their stories. Jeff, uh, thanks a bunch uh, as well. Uh, give my best uh, to Cameron uh, and uh, as, as he uh, competes on the PGA Tour, uh, continue the tradition of black excellence uh, on, the, on the PGA Tour. Uh, and uh, we look forward to, uh, to sharing uh, that Q&A. Uh, Y'all are going to really enjoy it. Uh, Lee had us cracking up. Uh, telling the stories, especially one of the good stories, Renee, about how they used to go hustle uh, golfers in certain cities for money, and uh, they got to one place, and let's just say one guy was not happy that he got hustled by Lee and his friends, and they had to book it out of town, uh, or they were going to get shot uh, by a homeboy. Y'all, it was because Lee told me the story when we were playing. I was like, Lee, you got to retell that story to all the young golfers who were here who don't have to hustle like he and Lee Trevino did. Uh, but, uh, but it was a great story, and I look forward to sharing it with our folks. Roy Johnson, Renee Powell, uh, Jeff Champ, I certainly appreciate you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Roland. Thank you. Guys. Thank Thank you. you. All right, folks, uh, I'm going to go to a quick, quick break. Uh, we come back. A little more of the sights and sounds of the Bayou Classic this weekend, the 40th annual Bayou Classic between Southern University and Grambling State. That's next on Roller Martin Unfiltered.
folks, Black Star Network is here. I'm real um, revolutionary right now. Back Support this man, Black Media. He makes sure that our stories are told. Uh, thank you for being the voice of Black America, Roller. Hey, Black, I love y'all. All momentum we have now, we have to keep this going. The video looks phenomenal. See, this difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. You can't be Black-owned media and be scared. It's time to be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You dig? City Rocker in the selling shirt. They gave me the gear. The, pre- the president said, make sure he gets this. Uh, and so I'm wearing their hoodie on the show today. It was a thrilling weekend as Grambling uh, beat selling last-second field goal uh, to capture the 48th annual Bayou Classic. Uh, cameras were there partnering with Coca-Cola. We, of course, we were there at the coaches' luncheon. Uh, we were there, of course, uh, for uh, the uh, show before uh, the uh, Battle of Bands and the Step Show. Then, of course, uh, the parade on Saturday. Then, of course, we had on, on Saturday, uh, we, we were broadcasting live for Champion Square. Then, of course, we also live-streamed the halftime show, the full halftime show. And so here's just some of the stuff uh, that we shot Saturday night uh, as well, including... Uh, as I shot that, that moment from the field, we in Grambling, uh, kicked that field goal, and the crowd went crazy. Y'all check this out. Hey, folks. I'm Roland Martin with the Black Star Network. Welcome to the 48th Annual Bayou Classic Halftime Show, presented by Coca-Cola, featuring the Southern University Human Jukebox and the Grambling
money. All right. DC, yes, sir. All right. All right, Frank, What's up? What's up? What's up, man? Nobody on me, what up? Ain't nobody on me, what up? Uh, quite an emotional moment there for a lot of the Grambling players. Uh, when you see the people who are crying, look, that was seniors. Same thing happened on the side of uh, on the southern sideline. Uh, and so last game for many of those folks, uh, last time they ever played football, last time they ever cheer, last time they ever play in the band, last time they ever be a dancer or a drum uh, or, you know, carrying the flags. And so uh, a great weekend uh, on, on both sides. And we certainly appreciate Coca-Cola for partnering with us uh, to bring you the 40th annual Bayou Classic. Uh, next month, we will be in Atlanta for the Celebration Bowl. Pitting the winner of the SWAC conference as well as the MIAC conference. Looking forward to that. We'll be there December 14th through the 19th, bringing you all the festivities from the Celebration Bowl, sponsored by Coca-Cola. And so we're looking forward to that. Uh, and so thank you so very much. All right, folks, that's it for us. Uh, we will see you guys tomorrow right here on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Don't forget to download the Black Star Network app. That's how we were able to do everything. If you missed uh, our coverage, just simply go to the app. You can see all of the events uh, that we actually stream. Download to your Apple iPhone, uh, Android, Apple TV, Android TV, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Xbox, and Smart TV. And of course, support our Bring the Funk fan club. Your dollars support what we do. Cash App, dollar sign, RM Unfiltered. PayPal, R Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zelle is rolling at rollingsmartin.com. All right, folks, that's it. I will see you tomorrow right here. Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Yo, shout out to my niece, Lizzie. A happy birthday. Oh, hold up. Uh, brother, I was in the airport. He watches the show. He, he's like, no, you're not going to forget. Like, bro, chill out. I'm not going to forget. Um, and so... Uh, he wanted me to give him uh, a shout out. Uh, he is a uh, serves in the U.S. Uh, Marine Corps, and so I know I put it in our group me. So let me go ahead and pull that up, uh, so I wouldn't forget. Uh, let's see here. If y'all see the name, y'all let me know. I posted it on yesterday, and so we were flying back. Uh, he was asking me, did I enjoy the game? Uh, and I told him I uh, certainly uh, enjoyed the game uh, very much so. And so he like, man, can I get a shout out? Can I get a, sar a shout out? Was it Sergeant Lewis um, uh, with, uh, let's see here. Did I put it in here? I know I remember it. I know y'all typed it in. Calm down. All right, hold on. Hold on, where did I put it? I put it over here somewhere. All right, Sergeant Lewis, U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, I told you I would give you a shout out. All right, you got your shout out. All right. <laughs> told me I was gonna do it. All right, y'all. That's it. I'll see y'all right here, Roland Martin Unfiltered. Holla! Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. I'm late. I'm late. Three very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. 